Uh, this is why I'd, I'll do the Matthew bit and I won't do the tech bit, sorry. Um, but what's going on with the imagery of salt? Because many of it, we'd use it, uh, it's like it's flavoring. And so our job on the earth is to make the world taste better. And then you have to get into, all, so what, what do you mean by that? It's like what, when it, you are the salt of the earth, but then well, if it loses its saltiness, you go, that, that's a bit of a strange comment because salt, I mean, literally speaking, salt doesn't lose its flavor. You, can't, you never put salt on anything that doesn't taste of salt. That's not quite what happens. So what, that's obviously not what he means. What does he mean? And then people go, no, it's not really about flavoring because salt is a preservative. It's there to function like an ancient version of a fridge. So you have salt in order to preserve, as of course people did, for, to preserve meat for longer. So they cure it, they smoke it, like f- smoke fish. So it stops things going off. That's what the church's role is. It's to be a preservative in the world, not to flavor the world. And by the way, what would flavoring the world really mean anyway? So no, it's a preservative. And then people say, well, but that's not what salt meant in the Old Testament. In fact, salt in the Old Testament was offered with sacrifices. And Jesus, in, 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 in a particularly obscure passage of Mark, talks about things being salted with fire. I think, what's that? Are we now adding salt to the frying pan and then frying? I mean, what, what do you mean? You're salted with fire. And then, of course, other imagery in the Old Testament talks about salt being used to destroy. And so, you know, they, they came in, they conquered the city, and they sowed it with salt. As in, they put salt all over the land to stop it from growing any crops. So what, we, what is this image? Is it meant to destroy things? Is it meant to preserve things? Is it meant to flavor things? Is it meant to be offered with sacrifice? Is it meant to fertilize things and help them grow? And of course, I think the answer is, yeah. It's meant to do all of those things. And the church is, in that sense, a flavor, a, a flavor in the world. It's there to, to draw out the best things that there are that God has made in the world and to draw them out and to make them taste better. And it's also there to preserve a world that will otherwise go rotten. And it's also there to act as a judge and as a judgment over broken, fallen things in the world, and to speak words of judgment. And it's also there to fertilize the good things and cause them to grow. And it's also there to be offered up in sacrifice on behalf of the world. I think all five of those things are in there because those five things are all things that salt could mean in the ancient world and in the Old Testament. But it takes some digging to get them. And if you're not careful, you play them off against each other and end up overstating one element and not another. But this is in some of the most famous verses in the New Testament. There's just so much more there because of the way that these things work. And Matthew seems to delight in it, and Jesus clearly does. The idea that these images have just got a lot of power, and that sometimes Jesus doesn't spell it all out, partly because I think he wants people to think about it and go, okay, you are the salt of the earth. That's the first thing Jesus says of the church in Matthew's gospel, which is, you know, there's nine Beatitudes, not eight, as we'll come back to. There's nine Beatitudes, and then you are. Let's start there. This is who you are, and then I'll tell you what you should do, but this is who you are. And the first thing he says is, you're the salt of the earth. That's got to have some, I want to spend some time thinking about what he meant by that. And he may well have meant all five of those things and possibly even others. Fish. Obviously, fish are big in the Gospels, um, which they would be if you're talking about a Galilean teacher gathering around Galilean fishermen. Um, And then you've got a, a, a bunch of others as well. Salt and light, city versus the stars sand, seed, all sorts of images like that, lamps, yeast, crops, sheep, coins, treasure, nets, pearls, stones, figs, sunshine, rocks, vines, water, lots and lots of things that Jesus is continually drawing on and going, look at how all of these things reveal the life of the kingdom. Bread, obviously, take and eat. This is my body. We'll come back to bread, as I said, uh, in a moment. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruits. 
Um, so we've got trees for good and bad. And then look at the birds of the air and just the carefreeness of birds as they fly. And so again, God's going to feed every one of those. And that's what you are to be like as well. Um, I can't remember. Are we breaking at 11 or 10.30? 11. Okay, I'm glad. Are you all right back there, Neil? Is it, it seems that it was me being an idiot rather than anything back there. But you're still policing it. That's good. Yeah. All right. <laughs> you take your time. <laughs> um, so lots of, there are a lot of things. <laughs> Maybe I'll just say that, say it no more strongly than that. But there's just riches in a lot of these things. Um, and Jesus, Jesus I, it, and part of it is just, is good pedagogy, isn't it? It's, Jesus is showing us that when you take physical things that people know and you talk about them to reveal truths of the kingdom, that you, people find it more easier to remember. And so I'm a big one for object lessons and physical things to go, look at this thing, that's what the kingdom is like. Um, I, I learned to preach in kids club and I do it a lot, um, and, and many of us do, but it's not just a methodological point, it's also a way of teaching us how to read creation and say you really do have, you know, I mean, creation is preaching. It's not enough, you need the, you know, I, I'm quite a sort of Psalm 19 guy like this, you know, that you, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork, but then you also do need the law of the Lord revives the soul and makes wise the simple. So you, the creation on its own preaches and says, look at the kind of God there must be, but you also need the word to say, and this is what it means, and this is how to understand what God has done, but the two do preach together. Um, it's no good just having the creation. You know, go, oh yeah, you're getting very quickly into nature worship there. But if that, if you only go, it's just no, we only do the word. We, you actually, people's imagination gets narrowed because they don't see how much of the word is drawing from the rest of the world to say actually everything God has made is pointing to what God, who God is, and what He's done. Um, I just I find that with the, the the sun is such an obvious example, isn't it? But it's the idea of the sun as being that created by God to give us, you know, and you've got to be, you've got to be careful because the Bible is so, so careful not to worship the sun, um, but at the same time say this, the idea of this primacy, this, the light and the heat, the idea that even when you can't see it, it's still there providing light and life for everything on earth. And in fact, the very things that stop you from seeing it are themselves generated by the sun. So as in even the clouds are only there because the sun has generated the cycles that make the clouds move and even when it goes dark that is because you're moving away from you you're turning yourself away from the light of god not because the light isn't there and all these it's just such a beautiful image but obviously the bible doesn't go to town too much on that one because sun worship was quite a thing back then um and i always often say to rachel like living around here i can see why that's the only kind of idolatry i think i would have been tempted to i would never have been a let's worship a wooden statue but i think when you live in northern europe and you've been through the grayness of our march as well this right it was really gray really late and then summer around mid-may you, you walk outside it's like i can take off my jumper and my coat it's like oh, i can imagine why people would fall to the ground and bow in worship before this thing and go yeah this is an amazing gift but it just displays so much of who and what god is and you trace that through the scripture. So there's a lot of things in the Bible and they illuminate. And in Matthew in particular, uh, a very, very strong emphasis. So of all of those, I could, probably could have written a whole book of 30 chapters on things just from Matthew. Because there's so many of them that are, are meaningful in that way. But let me dive a little bit deeper into... Any questions on that, on the uh, things I've thrown out there about whatever, whatever it was, pigs or salt or something that you're going, what? Or any other comments? Yeah. 
Yes. 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 Absolutely. I mean, that's that's. I suppose the sacrificial language I'm drawing is that. Is, yes, is that covenant language, um, and I mean, you could draw. I suppose even this, um, scarcity was another was that you're alluding to is a factor too, because that's there's a lot of people who say that's the origins of our word salary, is the idea that people were paid in salt because it was a valuable commodity, and that's another angle on it. So yeah, no, that's good. Rich. There's an extent to which Jesus is saying something about the kind of the original mandate on us, the kind of the city project to extend and expand the cultivation of the garden. So even in these simple things, mm. Jesus is teaching, uh, this is always the plan, this is always what was in you, to extend my peace and shalom and my kingdom throughout the world. And uh, one of the ways you'll see that is in a subjugation of things like seeds and uh, trees and Mm. Yeah, I think. So I think. I think. No, 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 you're wrong, Richard. No, he's not wrong. No. Yeah. No, I, I, I probably don't. I, I'm trying. I can't see that there's a. This is now part of a creational mandate to renew all things from the fact that he's using these things. But I think that the it's almost again more the other way round. The idea that God has made a world that is so filled with ordinary like that plant life and animal life form such a big part of the Bible is is part of trying to help us see again, you guys were given this mandate to care for everything in it, and you're always to be thinking about the whole of it. And, and probably you do become spiritually impoverished as your life becomes more concreted and bricked up and less, of a, less able, a, a, able to see a lot of what's going on in the world. Now, that could be the... I mean, you live in Poole, so you're, you're doing well here. Um, and I'm, you know, I live in Eastbourne and drive through the countryside all the time. So I don't want to be an overplay the sort of country bumpkins are better kind of card. Um, <laughs> although I suppose maybe. Um, but, the, but actually, the, there is something spiritually impoverishing about only seeing some elements of what God has made. And, that, that, and that's not to say we should all be travelers all the time. But I do think there are things that you, you experience of God when you see the sea or trees or that you find harder to perceive when you're surrounded by man-made stuff. And I think, I've, I've, yeah, I've read Joseph Minich's book, Bulwarks of Unbelief, which has come out this year. He talks a little bit about this, about even the extent to which our that the more our world is mediated through human-made things, technology, screens, buildings, cars, the, the more likely it seems to human beings that God is not needed. Because the givenness of things, and that's a Marilyn Robinson term, but the givenness of things is just not part of our daily experience. Everything you see is mediated through human agency. So it's very difficult to see the transcendence of God. And so in a sense, there is a there is a creation mandate built into the amount that Jesus and God in Scripture talks about created things. I probably wouldn't want to overdo it and go, therefore, man-made things are somehow ungodly or anything, because he also talks about men building their houses on this or versus that. So, he's, you know, he's, construction projects are in there too. But I, I, I do think that the sort of, yeah, the, cre- the amount of creation there is in the Bible is very, a very important part of God's vision for people and how we flourish. So if you do live in the middle of a city, if, if you're in lockdown in this part of London, you were not only impoverished by not being able to move, you, ju- you just didn't really see created stuff other than humans for three or four months. And I just don't think that's good for the soul. I think a lot of people found that 
was bad for their mental health, all that sort of stuff, which you would think it would be because of the way God has made the world. So, Love cities too, but you know what I mean? It's just, there was a lot in there. Anyway, bread, okay? I feel on slightly safer ground than ad-libbing my way through. Um, so I talked about that Matthew 13 to 16 is very... <laughs> you're still all laughing at this. You guys are meanies. <laughs> it's a very long... I've tried to rescue you from your question, Rich. <laughs> um, successfully or not, we will... Um, I said before, Matthew 13 to 16 is very bready. Um, and so we'll, we'll take some examples the whole way through, from seeds to leaven to wheat to bread to the crumbs. Okay, so I just... I hope this is interesting, but even if it's only interesting, I hope it will just keep your attention, but I do think there's significance even in the way Matthew's ordered it. Again, you don't get this to the same degree in the other Gospels. You get lots about bread there too, but Matthew is almost like a book of bread in the middle of, uh, in the, middle of the Gospel. A farmer went out to sow his seed. Some fell here, some fell here, some fell there. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which is slightly different from yeast. Leaven is the yeasted bit of dough rather than the the fungus itself. Um, Most of the time, it doesn't really matter. That a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. So flour is another thing we could have drawn out until it was all leaven. So Jesus is already talking a lot about the kingdom through seeds that grow into flour, seeds that grow into wheat that grows, turns into flour that turns into bread. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So it's not just that the kingdom teachings like leaven that has the capacity to shape and influence everything and spread throughout the whole, but so does bad teaching. So good teaching is like leaven. And you throw out, and those of us, most of us in some ways involved in teaching the church, whether we preach publicly a lot or not, and we're out there, we're, we're leavening people's lives. And you throw it in, and we always say things like this, don't we? But then people don't remember it, and it doesn't matter that they don't remember it. You won't remember most of this, and that doesn't bother me in the slightest, because it's leavening your life and mine as we're talking about it. And it's bearing, it's gradually, but the converse is, so does the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The same image used for good and bad teaching. Because that's what ideas do. That's what teaching does. That's what doctrine does. It leavens and it can spread like a fungus. And Paul is like, this is why you've got to get this man out of the church. Because a little leaven, a little mold spreads through the whole cheese. But leaven specifically, it just pollutes the entire thing. But it also causes it to rise. So it's both a fungus and a rising agent at the same time. But that's the way Jesus likes to play with things and get us to think about the nature of good and bad teaching. And um, yeah, it's my dad sitting over there. He introduced me to uh, Judson Cornwall like 30 years ago and just got me into thinking about God and preaching and so on for the first time. But he was, he was quite big on this theme. It was like, hungry sheep will eat anything. If, if people are not given stuff that is leavened with the good word, they will, they'll eat something. They'll, they, and obviously now that's much more true than it was because there's so much content online that's that's not edifying and it's like people need leavened meals so make sure you're leavening them with good doctrine um 
Oh, and then, but then, of course, the disciples don't get it, which is one of my favorite reviews. Oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact you have no bread? Don't you yet understand? I literally, you've just been there when I made enough bread for 5,000 people from a lunchbox. And then as if you didn't get that, I made it for 4,000 people out of another lunchbox. And you're still going, gosh, you must be talking about the fact we didn't remember to bring bread. How could you possibly have that as your problem at this point in time? And, you know, so yeah, leaven is used as the analogy of the kingdom. It's not literally bread. But... He also is going to talk a lot about and do a lot of genuine, literal provision of miraculous bread. Then with wheat, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. We know all these parables, but just notice the the continuity of how the, the seed Becomes and then mixed with eleven, um, and the wheat then turns into bread. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. I love that. Uh, my friend Glenn Packham has written a book on the sacrament, kind of on the sacraments, but it's called "Blessed, Broken, Given." But just the pattern we see here that Jesus blesses, breaks, gives, and obviously it happens here. It happens in the in the Lord's Supper, but it also happens with our lives that we are blessed. And that we, like he, actually are, are broken and then given to the world. And it's, it's just a nice image drawn from this text. Um, and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they were all ate and were satisfied. And then, of course, the same thing happens again in chapter 15. He took the seven loaves and the fish. They took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And then the story about uh, of the crumbs. So in between those two stories of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, we have another story about bread in which the Syrophoenician, the, the kind of, the is Jesus a racist story? Um, you know, because it sounds, and people, you do, there's plenty of people who would write articles about that now saying Jesus is a racist because of, look how he treats this woman. But actually, because we don't see the, I genuinely think it's just an anemic reading of the gospel to see it in anything like that way, because this is a story about who gets the bread sandwiched in between two stories about God providing a lot of bread. But the first story, 5,000, is 5,012 baskets is for Israel. And then the second story takes place in Gentile territory. Who was it that mentioned that yesterday? Because they do deserve a ripple for that. It was you. And he's now at the front row, knowing the ripple is coming. Can we give him a ripple? The point being, it's actually about where it happens. So it's, brought, it's, in, it's in Gentile territory, which is much clearer in the Mark version. And then actually, then it's like 4,000 people and seven baskets left over. And so again, you have a sort of bread for the Jews story. And then you have a woman going, do I get bread as well? And he goes, well, what a, is it right to take the bread from the kids and give it to the dogs? And he goes, yeah, because the dogs can eat the crumbs as well. And he goes, great is your faith. That's just what I wanted to hear. And then immediately after provides bread for the Gentiles and the feeding of the 4,000, which I think it gives, us a, it gives us a double luck, as my wife would call it. You both have an, a good explanation of the faith of the Canaanite woman story, but you also have a good explanation as to why there's two feeding stories. Because one of them is very, the symbolism is very clearly Israel, even right down to the 12 baskets. Um, but if you were to give a number to Israel and the Gentiles, you'd give the number 12 to Israel and 70 to the Gentiles. And so I think the idea that you have 12 baskets and seven baskets is significant even there. But one is in Israel and one is in Gentile territory. And the combination is drawing this out. The woman is effectively the, the, the hinge between these two stories, saying, can I, as a, as a non-Jew, can I get the bread that comes from the Messiah as well? And he says, yes, great is your faith. And then provides miraculous bread for the Gentiles as well. 
So she bridges, yeah, the Jewish 5,000 and the Gentile 4,000. Yes. Oh, the Gen- uh, so Genesis 11 and 12, or Genesis 10 and 12. So the 70 nations and the 12 tribes, I think, is the sort of 12 and... Also, um, Did you say Roger? <laughs> As in Roger from, you know, Roger, okay, got that. Yeah, no, I know that's what it means. I just thought it was an amusing turn of phrase. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> Roger, Roger, over, over, all that, yeah. There is also, uh, there is also a view that at the time of Jesus, that territory was called the land of the seven because of the seven clans that were driven out um, under Joshua. And the rabbis at that time said, well, they're all Gentiles over there. That must have been where they went. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Okay. No, I didn't. Is that in, from Mark or from Matthew? Um, uh, I hadn't come across that. In Matthew, it does say seven baskets. Yeah. Oh, no, I know the seven baskets. It's the, the seven cities thing. Extra biblical. Right. Okay. No, I had not come across that. That was fascinating. Um, so, yeah, this is, again, when we're back to things, we've obviously got dogs making an appearance. And we had dogs, you know, so it's not right to take the bread from the children and give it to the dogs. Yes, but the dogs eat the crumbs. And obviously we were told in the Sermon on the Mount, don't give to dogs what is holy and cast your pearls before swine. And then, so it's just sort of left there, you know, like a, just sort of like Chekhov's gun, just sort of hanging, left in the background going, is that going to go off? And then 10 chapters later, we get this woman saying, yeah, but the dogs can, can't they? Because they do get access to the table with everybody else and eat alongside the children. Yes, they do. That's exactly right. So it's just a, the, the bread, seeing the whole, all these four chapters is brought together with, with a lot of bread, yeast, leaven, all those sorts of images. And it's just it's really helpful when it comes to understanding the meaning of some of these particular passages, which can be some of the trickier ones in the gospel as well. Now, I think. Okay, so I'm now going to do a whole book uh, of mine. But this, um, this is one that you're less likely to have read, I expect, unless you have little children. But I just want to... Walk with me, okay? My name is Alex. I'm eight and a half, and I come from an African town in the Med. But most of this story is not about me. It's the tale of a boy who was born in a shed, the boy from the house of bread. I first heard of Jesus from Rufus at lunch. You see that guy over there teaching, he said. I saw where my brother was pointing and looked. They say he brought two children back from the dead, a widow's young son, an important man's daughter. They say he heals blindness and walks on the water. They say he was born when his mum wasn't wed in the town they call House of Bread. I stared at the teacher. He didn't look much, no rippling muscles, no crown on his head. So I started to listen to what he was saying. The kingdom of God is like this, he said. Then he told us some stories of scattering seeds and harvesting crops and pulling up weeds. He kept on describing the kingdom of heaven with stories of flour, of wheat, and of leaven, and feasting, and everyone poor being fed. They all seemed to be about bread. Once, around tea time, my brother and I were part of a crowd in a ravenous mood when Jesus' helper came over and asked, did you boys remember to bring any food? Just a fish sandwich, I said with a grin. Perfect, he said. So I gave him my tin. He took it to Jesus, who offered a prayer, then broke the bread loaves before starting to share. The food just kept coming. So much fish and bread that it made an incredible edible spread with nobody hungry and 5,000 fed. I've never seen anything like it, I said. A man who can multiply bread. The trouble began a bit later that summer. They captured his cousin and cut off his head. They started to plot about how they could kill him. They couldn't get over the things Jesus said, like, I am the light in a world that's asleep. 
And I am the shepherd who dies for his sheep. And I am the savior who raises the dead. And I am the life-giving bread. I didn't see Jesus again until the spring. Things were beginning to come to a head. The word on the streets of Jerusalem was that the priests and the leaders all wanted him dead. My dad was concerned. It didn't look pretty. Jesus had angered the local committee and thousands of pilgrims were filling the city for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I woke up that Friday. The morning was chilly as Dad told my brother to get out of bed. We have to get going right now, whispered Dad. They've captured the man from the House of Bread. He knew it was coming. He said not to fight. They all had a Passover supper last night. He said he'd be captured before it was light, but that in the end it would all be all right. He said not to fear, but to trust him instead. And he left them with wine and bread. We ran to the edge of the city in tears. Don't worry, they'll put him on trial, Dad said. But when we arrived, it was less like a trial and more like a mocking parade instead. They made Jesus dress in a bright purple gown and twisted together a prickly crown. Later, he carried his cross out of town, so weak that he couldn't stop falling down. I stared as a soldier in silver and red took Dad by the arm and pointed ahead. You carry his cross, he said. Dad had to carry the old rugged beam to the hill called the Skull. He couldn't refuse. Rufus and I kept ourselves out of sight as they hoisted the man they called King of the Jews. I looked at the man on the cross as he bled. The afternoon sky became darker like lead. He finally shouted and bowed his head. My mission is finished, he said. It felt like the end of the world. It was. We walked back in silence and went to bed. Saturday came and I cried all day long. They'd murdered the man who could multiply bread and the hope of the world was dead. I woke up on Sunday before it was morning. Some women were chattering out on the streets. They said they were heading for Jesus' grave. I decided to follow them all in bare feet. As Jerusalem's sunrise was piercing the gloom, the women arrived at the tomb. You probably know graves are closed off with stones, but this one was open. No body, no bones. How could this happen? The women all cried. Two shining strangers stood off to one side. Why look for life in a graveyard, they said. You're after the man from the house of bread? He's not here. He's risen, just like he said. Your king is alive, not dead. That week was a blur. The city was buzzing. The friends who had seen him were starting to preach. But I didn't see Jesus until two weeks later. He barbecued breakfast for us on the beach. I loved it. He made us my favorite dish, freshly baked rolls served with charcoal grilled fish. What happens now, master? Somebody said. He paused as he finished a mouthful of bread. Harvest, he answered. Go into my field and feed hungry people and see the sick healed. Tell all the world I'm alive and not dead and I will be with you wherever you tread. Now go and teach everyone all that I said and invite them for wine and bread. So that's what I did. I went home that summer, back to my town in the African Med. But the rest of my life wasn't really my own. It belonged to the boy who was born in a shed, who walked in the water and rose from the dead, the king from the house of bread. So it's weird. Thank you. It's just a very bready story. And I just, I think objects like that, I know this is obviously one, and you can do the same with water and wine and salt and pigs and all the rest but I just think it can be a good way of telling the story of the gospels particularly and and I know it's a kid's book but I just think sometimes for adults they go oh yeah there's a lot lot of different ways in which that's just the image runs all the way through and I I just methodologically I think it, it can be a helpful tool as we're thinking about Matthew in particular but you know preaching scripture more generally any 
questions or comments on any of that, we're going to break in a couple of minutes. Um, but any kind of sort of comeback or observations or questions? Luke. Um, do you think the physical thing is so important for us in a couple of ways? Like, as you said, so much of our world and jobs is like literally moving things around on screens and yeah. to exist. So that sense of dissonance from the physical world. Yes. And that can, you know, you know, Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven. So what do all we think about when the kingdom of heaven? Yeah. Nothing physical yeah. at all. Yeah. And eschatologically, our thinking is, oh, it's way and it's out there, which obviously it isn't. Yes. And so I think this is really important for seeing, for people to understand the, the, the importance of the stuffness of their life, but also of that yes. future as well. Yes. So then we need to... Yeah, definitely. And, uh, and um, as I said, this Joe Minich book was really interesting like this because it's not, it's not why I've done it for years, I suppose, or, or talked about it. But I, I hadn't really noticed how the... To use the sort of fancy terminology, how the plausibility structures of modern secularism and atheism are built on a mediated technology-infested world because they remove, they make divine agency look less and less plausible just because everything you get is mediated through human contact or human devices. And so the, actually, if you want an, a generation to be atheist, one of the key things you need to do is give them tools to make sure that they just don't see very much of what God has made in a given day. Um, it, unless it's mediated through human devices like televisions or websites or whatever. And so I think there's a sort of broad... Now, obviously, to some degree, that's a, that's a slightly pessimistic point because we're clearly not going to be able to... Just, unless you become a total Luddite and destroy technology for the sake of the gospel, you're, you're probably not going to be able to uninvent the wheel and that sort of thing. But I, I still think it's wise for us in discipleship. Just Even those of us who take young people out of cities and do camping... I mean, I don't just mean like at New Day. I mean, just going out and people who do things out of the woods or scout camps. It's weird how sometimes just being out and seeing the world. Even how often do you see, it sounds very cold play, a sky full of stars? In Britain, almost never. I mean, I've only once seen a properly starry sky in Britain, and that was in Mount Snowden. And other than that, you just, around where I live, you just, you don't. You see a few. And some of you, some of you know Steph Liston, but when he... He took his kids out of London when they were little, and they went, I think they went to Centre Parks, and one of his kids looked, pointed at the sky and went, look, Dad, fireworks, because they'd never seen stars. Like, they just didn't know what they were. And I'm like, what? But that is, round here, that's what it's like. But actually getting people out of that to be able to say, this world is, God has made it, and it was good, and we need to be able to see it, without us therefore becoming, you know, eco tourists or effectively but I do think there is a danger to people being overly formed by man created stuff and only you know so yes I think I thoroughly agree yeah Joe yeah that seems um, helpful I understand the kind of logic in how people get their possibility structure over secularism from that is there a danger obviously with Matthew's context you know he's not they didn't have computer screens and aeroplanes, and so it's not deliberately not going there. Do you know what I mean? For us to read in to say that he's making a point of using things in an agrarian kind of natural world, but obviously that was the only world. No, I absolutely agree. I don't think Luke's saying that at all. I think he's saying for us using physical stuff, given the the kind of you didn't use the word Gnosticism, but the, the danger we have of thinking that the, the material world is really not all that and actually everything can either be spiritualized or turned in, into or digitized 
for our generation, it's particularly important to do this. I think that's what he's saying, rather than Matthew is making that point. I agree he's not making that point. That's where we ended up with Rich, um, with the sort of back and forth. <laughs> Sorry, this is very... Rich has come to a lot of these events we know each other well, so I hope it's okay. But, um, so no, I'm not saying Matthew's doing that at all. And of course, and that is a point that Joe Minich make, makes in his book, because saying this is now true of cities... Effectively, one of the questions he asks in the book is, why is it the case that cities were more Christian than the rest of the world for so much of church history, but in the, modern, in the last 200 years, cities have become much less Christian? And he says, because it's the influence of mediating technologies, initially factories, and now the digital revolution, which effectively means that whereas before, when you were in a city, you might have been surrounded with just as much nature and a lot more people, now you've got more people but almost no access to nature. So the, the meaning of the city has changed in its impact on formation and catechesis, which I think is, it feels quite a compelling point. Like I, I haven't seen a counter-argument to it yet, but it feels true. Um, so I know you're not a theological conference, you're not allowed to say it feels true. But when I read it, I thought, I buy that. That instinctively sounds like, yeah, I can see that is a thing. I can even see it in my, my own life. Um, so yeah, but I, I think the, you're right. Matthew's not doing that. Okay, should we break for tea and coffee? Um, we can pick up any remaining questions at the start of the next session. And we'll start again at half 11. Yes, I mean, obviously, Jesus, um, you know, firstly, Jesus said all of the things Matthew says he said. Um, so let's, I, I imagine we're, we're probably all, you know, this is an evangelical theology of scripture reflected in the conference, right? Um, so absolutely. I think, I'm not sure I would, if I was doing John, I, I don't think I would do it quite the same way because I think what John does is he zeroes, zeroes in on fewer images and makes a lot more of them. One could. No, one could, but one could, but I even then I think the, the bread point definitely, yeah. He could click the bread of life in some ways, it'd be easy. That, that bit was really just because I happened we're doing Matthew, not John, and I thought the kids' book would be a good way of making the case. But and you're right about the bread of life discourse clearly, but I think with John, what you'd see is much fewer images drilled down to in a lot more detail. Whereas the passage we just the one we read out loud where he just go, you're salt and you're also a light and you're also a city. And it's obvious, isn't it, that you don't take a lamp and put it, and put it under a bowl, but you put it on a standard. Like, but he, and continually just drop, 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 multiple, many, many different images, even in the Sermon on the Mount. And so let's, you know, we're going to talk about pigs and then we'll talk about dogs and then we'll throw it in there and immediately start talking about gates and then thorns, thorn trees and thistle trees and then go with wise and foolish builders on sand and rock and... It's much more scattergun, I think, in the synoptic gospels than it is. But I don't think Matthew's making it up at all. I just think, I think Matthew's interested in it. I think Jesus is clearly pedagogically doing this all the time. But I don't think it's, I'm not claiming it's unique to Matthew. I think the heaven-earth thing is more a Matthew thing. Um, and a, in a way, the, but a differentiate between, differentiating between is it Matthew or Jesus, to me, at this point, doesn't really matter. because It's in Matthew but I'm not saying it's unique to him. I do think John's different because John is fewer images, much more depth than Matthew or than any of the synoptics, I would say. Um, yeah, Chris. Um, so at the, obviously you wasn't thinking about the technological age. Yeah. Which, yeah, this is a guy, <laughs> he lives in zone one, so he's worried about it. Yeah. But um, 
created bad and or like creation bad and um, spiritual good might have been in his mind as he was thinking about. Whose mind? Matthew's? In Matthew's as he's writing this. Yeah, I, I don't... This is back to the comment Luke was making and the question that Joe asked, is that I, I think... Yeah, I suppose there's actually... And it's also related to this discussion. Like there's three layers here, right? There's, so there's Jesus said it, there's Matthew told us about it, and there's I or Luke or whoever thinks we need to learn from that method in our culture particularly. So because of the, some of the other reasons that Joe Minich is talking about and others. And I think... Matthew, I think Jesus is talking about it because, partly because it's an extremely good way of teaching, partly because everybody understands it, but I also think partly because creation itself is theocentric. It's not just that our theology is, it's not just we talk anthropomorphically about God, but creation is theomorphically designed, as in it's designed to show us God. So I think Jesus is doing it for that. Matthew's doing it for that really for the same reason, but I don't think he's needing to fight Gnosticism, in that particular sense, he's a Jew. And that's not the main concern he would be dealing with. Others will later. But in our generation, we have much more of a preference for disembodiment. You know, people... You know I mean? Online church is a thing. You know, it has been, whether it should have been or not, but it has been. People talk about, yeah, if I feel I'm a man, but I'm bodily a woman, I can transit. You know, that, our culture is hyper-Gnostic in that sense. We've got a very, very low view of... What the meaning of bodies and therefore probably that sort of taking physical stuff and teaching from it becomes almost more important in an apologetic way in our culture than it was in theirs but I don't think Matthew was making that point if, if I can say does that, does that answer your question? yeah, okay. yeah. I'm just trying to get from your perspective um, so I mean we're only like two in it's, it's mind blowing in terms of oh good well you could, you could leave now if you want you could quit while you're ahead <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. I don't know. Um, so I think... Uh, okay, so if I take the New Testament books I know well, I would say... I think so Revelation is a, a, another level to this in terms of the layering and the structuring and the... If you call it the cleverness of it, I think not in terms of its imagery, but in terms of its intelligence and intricacy, I think the letter to the Hebrews is. I would actually say, in a way, Paul... I'm obviously not going to disparage Paul's intelligence at all, but Paul doesn't... I don't think writes with that level of... It's not so many different things going on in Paul's... It's in some ways a bit easier to get to the structure of what he's doing than it is with the narrative books and the apocalypse. Matthew... And John, I think, are more 
they've organised their material with more things going on under the surface, I think, than Mark and Luke have. But as I'm saying even that, I'm thinking, would John Woods and his... Fan- so the guys who put their hands up for Mark might say, oh, no, Mark's doing that. And the guys who put their hands up for Luke might say... I, just, I might be able to just know Matthew and John better than Mark and Luke, and as a result, I see more in it. I don't know. Um, I, I think much of it as well... I think the other person we haven't mentioned yet in terms of agency authorship is, of course, the Holy Spirit, where I think we could... Where we could say... But I know it sounds a bit odd, but is it conceivable that... Oh, gosh, let's see where our theology goes here. Let's just make a mistake and clear it up afterwards. Is it conceivable that Jesus could say something... With a, layer of me- in, uh, with a layer of meaning that he didn't have, that the Spirit inspired Matthew to give it by putting it in the place he did and by wording it the way he did. Is that possible? As in, could Jesus have said things he didn't, that were deeper than he meant? As a- I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of almost already thinking, should I just unsay that? <laughs> As in, because we clearly believe he's healing in the power of the Spirit. And if you're teaching in the power of the Spirit, does that mean that there are, there are layers of things? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't want to say that he is. And in a way, maybe let's just put a pin in that question because it might not be illuminating anyway. But, but Matthew is clearly... Communi- there are some things Matthew means and there are something that Matthew is saying that he might not necessarily have meant, but the Spirit meant him to say. And so I think you might then say we've actually got four layers, not three. We've got what Jesus said, what Matthew meant Jesus, what Matthew knew, meant, what the Spirit meant Matthew to mean, and then what we need to learn from that to apply to our culture, which is the conversation we were just having. This has all got very meta. I'm, again, we're back in Christopher Nolan territory. <laughs> it doesn't feel like someone should do this as a movie. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure about the Spirit. Jesus, I, I don't, I don't quite, I've never thought that thought before. So as you can see, it's very live. I, I, and I wouldn't want to state it because I might subsequently go, that's a really bad way of thinking. Um, but I can, I can certainly think that, the, if no more than this, the ordering, the way you order Jesus' parables together can cause them to shed light on one another in ways that are different than they would if you ordered them completely differently and spread them out all over the place. So even in, if that alone, the spirit by inspiring Matthew to bring them together like this, has caused us to see things in them that... Jesus, when speaking, might have been making two or three different parables on different days, but Matthew's ordered them differently to help us see it. And I think that's a thing. But I'm going to request that from now on, in, in the Becky Whittlesey memorial head-in-hands moment, that we have no more questions about the various layers of agency in the writing, just because I think we will continue asking it and continue going, I don't really know. Um, but is that right, Becky? You'd, you'd, you'd be all for that, wouldn't you? Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, Ollie. I'm going for one that... The silence in the room when you shared it yeah. shows that no one really wants us to talk about this again. Um, but the genealogies that you went through... <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm fine with a further distance from, from Jesus, but if you can answer it quickly, great. Okay. Don't worry about it. But let's go just immediate. Jesus' grandfather, you've really got me there. In the, in the conference, yeah. I'm sitting and reading, I'm like, what? Maybe I missed up what you shared earlier, but... You've left me with a brain worm that is frustrating. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so, it, it, effectively, it's, it's a, there is a lever... that Jacob and Heli are the same person. 
that Mathan and Matat are the same. But the Jacob and Heli, and again, you get this, don't you? So Levi and Matthew, you get Thomas also called Didymus. You get a lot of that. And I know we find it strange, but in, well, like, you know, you, when you're reading a, a, a novel set in another country and you, you're 100 pages in and you suddenly realize, oh, I see that I didn't realize that Pavel was the same person as Sasha. And now the whole story is completely different and I've got to go back and start again or... Um, yeah, it's like the, when you read Wuthering Heights, you're like, for goodness sake, why don't all the characters have the same two names? It's so nauseating. Um, and I think that's going on there. So Jacob and Heli, Matt, it, the, his proposal is that Jacob and Heli are two names for the same person. And you have, obviously, lots of that phenomenon. Even Saul is also called Paul, right? There's really famous examples in the New Testament. Um, Matt and Matt are the same person. Um, but that Eliezer, according to this bubble, relocated to Nazareth from Bethlehem, died, and then his brother Levi raised his family. So effectively, the biological line of Joseph goes through Eliezer back to Abiud Zerubbabel on the blue and the but the adopted line goes through Levi Varesa back to Zerubbabel that way that's what he's suggesting because yesterday the, the Jacob Joseph dreamer analogy was great and then you're like oh great thanks Luke for just killing that for <laughs> yeah, well, and, but again, because, because Luke isn't trying to do the same thing at all, and, that, that in, and he's put his genealogy later anyway, so it wouldn't fit the same framing. He starts, obviously we could talk a lot about what Luke's doing when he starts with this sort of old off-centre, off-stage couple. It's like a Shakespearean play, beginning with this funny old couple bickering, you know, and then going into the main set, so it's a, a very different way again. Um, so yeah, that, that to me adds further weight to the idea that this is Matthew's intention. John. Yes. Yeah. So he's kind of very interested in objects. Yeah. I was interested in objects too. I, I was very pleased that we had fig rolls on the Yeah, I was interested by the fig rolls as well. Did anyone else sit that down and go, is there a biblical allusion here? Are we, why? Like, that wasn't, that wasn't oh, sorry, I thought that was the main point. <laughs> I just thought there was like a sort of, you know, there's a lot of figs in the Gospel of Matthew. Maybe someone's thrown out fig rolls for that reason. <laughs> Yeah. And it kind of highlights, by, by the mention of yes. um, the Hittite, that the failure of David. Yes, absolutely. In what, in what sense is Matthew setting up um, Jesus as, as the one who identifies with the failure of David? Um, and, and then later on, with the names Jesus and Emmanuel. Emmanuel coming to a son of David who has failure of faith. You know, what way is that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, that's really good. So the, John's picking up on the, the fact that Bathsheba is identified not by her name, but by the wife of Uriah. Um, and that effectively, because what that does is it highlights the failure of David and the need for a new and better David. Um, because obviously you, Bathsheba, you just drop it in and you move on. But as soon as you say the wife of Uriah, you're, you're saying this woman was married to someone else and David bumped him off and then slept with her and all that stuff and raped her, depending on how you read it. But it's really, really bad, like a terrible, terrible moment in Israel's story. We need a new son of David, don't we? That kind of thing. And I absolutely agree. I think that's what he's doing and preparing us for that in a very subtle way, which you only get on the third or fourth reading. Um, yeah, agreed. Martin. Um, you touched on it briefly. Um, this whole kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God and why Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. Could you just 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I think that the, in many ways I'm making a negative point there that often people say Matthew says kingdom of heaven because he's an observant Jew and doesn't want to say the word God. And Jonathan Pennington and others are saying no, that, that isn't why. It's because Matthew's, Matthew is using the language of heaven and earth more spatially than that and is deliberately... And the, the, the language of the kingdom, you could talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It refers it's roughly... It's a bit like saying what's the difference between... The, you know, the, the kingdom of King Charles and the United Kingdom. And you'd say, well, in a way, nothing. I mean, that, that's what the, the two are... I mean, that probably doesn't hold true because they're a Commonwealth country. Anyway, but you know what I mean? But there are Australia. Like, but I'm sure there would be a way of framing that. As in the limits of Caesar's power and the limits of the Roman Empire, you might say the same thing. But Matthew's calling them the kingdom of heaven because he's trying to... He's actually using heaven and earth more spatially and he's trying to... Make, emphasize this point that heaven is coming to earth and that Jesus is the one who is bringing heaven to earth in the way he's telling the story more than Luke is or, or, what, or more than Mark is. I think that's the point that they're making. Is there anything then when like, seek first the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of heaven? Is there anything specific about those when he actually uses God? I don't know. I haven't really thought about when the, the moments when he does say kingdom of God. I think that proves that he can't clearly have a problem with saying kingdom of God um, because he, he does himself. But I haven't given any thought to whether there's a difference in those few texts. No, I, something to think about. I haven't. Others may have thought of that. I haven't. Okay. Oh, sorry, John. Um, just uh, be interested to hear what you think about. We had a conversation about... There's a, not a very big movement, but there is a movement within the church towards that connection with the physical world and mm. that seeks God in things rather than just metaphors about God. Yeah. You know, so grace is like the rain. Mm. There's a movement towards God is in the, God yeah. is the rain or God is the, and the, so um, Pete Gregg is currently doing a pilgrimage and there's quite a bit in there about him experiencing God in the trees and the rocks and stuff, but not in the sense of it reveals to him something of the kingdom, but he feels or experiences or hears God in those things. And one of our table has someone in their church who came from the Church of the Forest, which is all about, like, you hug the tree and experience it. So is there a danger we push people too far into the Yes. Tree? Uh, is there a danger we push it too far in finding God in the stuff Um, yes there is I'm making an assumption which may make an ass out of you and me um, that in this room that's not the risk and that people who come to theological conferences are usually this is like this is going to illuminate scripture in a different way rather than we're going to go out there and say do you know what I don't I don't really need the church I don't need the sacraments, I don't need to share the gospel, I don't need to sing, I don't need to pray, I need to be communing with nature and hugging rocks and discovering God there. I just don't think that's likely to be the problem here. It clearly is a problem, um, but I think it's a fairly minority one. I don't know enough about Pete to know quite what he is and isn't doing in that, in that pilgrimage, so I wouldn't want to comment on that, but I, I think there is a partly actually dri- driven by the techno- technologization and the Gnosticism of our culture there is a, a sort of a, a kickback, a kind of obsession with 
Celtic Christianity, which is where a lot of that stuff's come from, in Britain. I think it was the... So, um, this person from this church, of course, has, um, one of the books they referred to was God on Mute, as Pete Griggs book, and it, I think it's that people have struggled with the charismatic emphasis on experiencing God in the yeah. spirit, hearing yeah. from God in a, in a yeah. spiritual way, and therefore they're trying to find something tangible yeah. and real, to, and so, so therefore they head in that monastic direction yeah. towards, if you can't hear God yeah. in this sort of ecstatic context, you can hear him yeah. in a form. Yeah, I, I think at this point, I... Yes, my acerbic side is likely to pop out here, but I think... So David Bentley Hart has a really funny rant about what is effectively like pastiche consumer monasticism in, in one of his books, in which he just, he just does this sort of, you know, people, you, today you can create your own consumer spirituality form of you can have a Tibetan prayer wheel and a Jungian this, that, and the other, and a quartz clock and a whatever, and a rain stick and all of this stuff, and until the, this combination of fraudulent scholarship and iconography becomes indistinguishable from interior decorating, which is a really, like, and, and as in you get, you know, and I think that some of it is because people are, I want the monasticism that doesn't, but I'm not, but I don't want the monasticism that would give up sex, or the monasticism that would give up, I might give up speaking for a few days and have an experience, but it wouldn't be the monasticism that would lead me to commit to an order for the rest of my life and say, I'm only going to eat at these times, I'm not going to get married or have sex, I'm not going to have children. I'm not, as in, this sort of monasticism on our terms. So we dabble in the... We give up certain things, but we don't give up the things that we really value too much, because that's, that's extreme. And we'll be ascetic about that for a few days, but we won't be ascetic. It's a, at its worst, it can be a bit like the people who say, I'm going to travel to a poor country and be there for a few days and then come back and feel like I've experienced poverty. That, that, that sort, now, I don't want to, I'm not saying that about Pete at all, because I, I haven't really been following what he's doing. But there's definitely that impulse in contemporary culture, which is, a, it is a new, another version of consumer spirituality. You assemble your own, you go, actually, that sounds very authentic and, you know, nice and, uh, you know, it just feels like I might be in touch with the spiritual. But actually, genuine monks, for all that, you know, I'm not, a, I don't think monasticism is a, overall is, not just for me, I don't think it's a particularly good model generally for most people. But I think at its heart was you're going to take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And most of the people who are doing the kind of thing you're describing are probably not having vows of either poverty or chastity. And by disappearing from community, might also not be making vows of obedience either. So I, at that point, I think this just doesn't watch. This is a, this is a fad. Um, and it's a fad that reflects the anxieties of our age and has secular equivalents. And it doesn't surprise me. And those secular equivalents are in every mind, body, spirit shelf in Waterstones. So I'm not surprised it's, it exists. But I don't, I just don't think it's... But if people are more serious, then they go, I do think monasticism is needed in our day. And I do feel called to a celibate communitarian expression. I think that's actually where monasticism has something to, a, a huge amount to add to the contemporary church. But, it's a, but that's for people who are... And among other things, going to be single, and people are going to say, "This is my community, not my nuclear family." This, but I imagine that's not what the people in the forest are doing. Maybe they are, but if they aren't, then I think oh, that's, that's selective monasticism. I don't think that's really a thing. Anyway, that's my. This isn't really very much to do with Matthew, but thank you for raising it. Um, okay, let's talk about wisdom, um, and uh, 
So sapiential, so to do with wisdom. A reading of Matthew that sees Jesus as really giving wisdom for life. And I think this is a big feature of what Matthew is telling us about Jesus. Again, let's not get into, does this come up in the other Gospels anywhere? Of course it does, but I think it is a particular theme of Matthew, as I've said. And so this is a sort of an introductory um, sort of set on this. I've drawn this from uh, Pat Schreiner's book. Matthew, disciple, and scribe, um, the idea that Jesus is, in Matthew's presentation, is particularly a sage, a wise teacher, and he obviously is a wise teacher anywhere, but he is a, um, you know, specifically drawn out that way. And so, if we, if we start sort of moving through the, start here, I love the, the pointy pointy is back, very excited. Um, so... Jesus is introduced as son of David, and then the genealogy is traced via Solomon. Now, on its own, that might just be Jesus is a king, but it, it, early on, we get introduced to the idea that Jesus is very much descended from Solomon. So back to Ollie's question about the two genealogies. There's the royal one, but there's also, this is, he is in the line of, specifically in the line of Solomon, not the, the prophetic line of Nathan in that sense. And Solomon, obviously, is not just king, but sage. Um, he is then worshipped by wise men, um, you know, magi or magi, whatever. Um, not to say necessarily the only thing going on there is this is a wisdom text, but obviously if you read it through that lens and you see where Matthew's going to go with this by the time we get through to chapters 12 and 13, you might say, oh, that's, that's not insignificant that we have wise men from another nation like the Queen of Sheba coming and bringing gifts and heralding the, you know, effectively the wise king, the, 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 the sage king. Um, that there is a Solomon. If you look for an Old Testament story, not just the prophetic text in Isaiah, um, in which the, you know, they're sort of bringing gifts of gold and frankincense, but if you look for an Old Testament story in which people talked about wisdom and came from a far-flung country to honor Israel's king, you'd obviously look to the Queen of Sheba story, and that is a Solomonic story. So I think there is a significant connection there. And then in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, we've obviously got the extended reference to the birds and the flowers, even Solomon wasn't. Even Solomon wasn't clothed like this. So there's various sort of breadcrumbs being left. Back to bread again. Um, breadcrumbs being left in drawing us the picture of Jesus as a Solomonic figure. And then that famous phrase, wisdom is proved right by her actions in chapter 11. And then this sort of outburst of prayer, sometimes called the Johannine thunderbolt, because it sounds like it's been picked up out of John and plonked in the middle of Matthew, and that's baffled commentators for a long time. But when he, you know, prays you are Lord and Father because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children, for such was your gracious pleasure. And then in all things have been, no one knows the Father except the Son, no one knows the Son except, it sounds like it's from John, right? Um, and we might come back to that later. But the idea that God has hidden things from the wise and revealed them to little children is a very proverbial kind of saying. And it's beginning, to, the, the wisdom theme is beginning to build and we'll come to the, Come to me, all those who are weary in a moment, because that's a great example. And then in chapter 12, it becomes more, much more explicit. Now, one greater than the temple is here. The queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and one greater than Solomon is here. So we've got, somebody's greater than the temple, somebody's greater than Solomon, queen of the, queen of the south. Do you, is anybody else here? Queen of the south, nil. In the head, because you used to watch... It's funny, I just, it's just such a weird thing. If you haven't lived in Britain for more than 20 years, it probably wouldn't make any sense. But that, at 4.45 on a Saturday, that was always what you'd do. And then Neil is looking back. Did you, were you old enough to remember this, Neil? No, not really. So people about my age. And it's like, Stranraad too, Queen of the South, nil. Um, anyway, the Queen of Sheba. But Matthew calls her the Queen of the South. 
Um, chapter 12. And then the sense of confusion and frustration in chapter 13. It's like, where did this guy get this stuff? How, he, he, they, he says to them, have you understood these things? And they say of him, where did this man get this wisdom from? And so they're beginning to express that there begins to be conflict emerging from the wisdom itself that Jesus is speaking. So I mentioned yesterday the mashal, the idea of the parable, which is also like a saying. I will utter, I will lift, I will utter parables or I will utter mysterious sayings and the way that that's used in the Psalms or in Proverbs and saying yeah, Jesus is doing that. that these, these wisdom sayings, parables don't just function like a, you know, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, heaven forbid. But they're like, no, this is like, like a wisdom saying. And there are lots of, when you look at them that way, there are lots of parables in that sense in the Psalms and particularly in Proverbs. They're often very brief ones. But, you know, in a sense, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the street, it's a parable. It's a very short one, but it, it is. And some of them are obviously a bit more extended. The idea of, I saw the, the woman of no repute, right? Lady Folly shouts in the street like this. There's lots and lots of parables in that sense. We don't tend to call them that because they don't take the form. Once there was a man who had two sons, but at their, at their root, they are wisdom sayings that create a fictional story to illuminate wisdom for us. And Jesus does that extensively in chapter 13 in a very Solomonic way. And people express their confusion at where it's coming from. Interestingly, in Luke, that sense of where on earth did this guy get this stuff from comes right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, doesn't it? In Luke 4, when Jesus preaches the sermon from Isaiah. And I say, hey, but what's going on? Isn't he the son of... And in Matthew, it comes at this point, at this sort of astonishment that he's as wise as that. That seems to be the issue. Not who, does he, who is he claiming to be, the scriptures fulfilled in your hearing, which is in Luke, but more like, where, how, how does he get all the wisdom? So again, so I think Matthew's interested in that theme that Jesus is the sage who's trying to teach us how to lead a flourishing life. And these parables are, are, are there to illuminate wisdom for living, which I don't think is something we place a lot of emphasis on in the way we preach on Matthew or on Jesus generally, actually. That he has come to... Oh, who's the, is it Dallas Willard in the... Um, oh, what's the famous Willard book about the Sermon on the Mount? The Divine Conspiracy. Um, but he talks about Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived. And, and one of the reasons I think when people read Willard, they go, oh, I like that bit, is often this idea, yeah, you just don't very often think about the, the cleverness of Jesus, just the fact that he really does know how to lead life better than anybody else. And Willard, I think just, you know, that book was, was big in part because I think it, it showed people something that's sometimes missing in our understanding because Jesus saves us from all the mistakes we've made in this life to give us a new one. But well, I was just, yeah, but he also does a lot about this, this is how to live this life really well, better than anyone else. And I think there's a lot of that in, in Matthew's portrait in particular. Um, so let's, should we find Matthew 13? Um, and uh, let's turn there. So Matthew 13 and verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. So this is like an apocalyptic wisdom, isn't it? Like there's things that are hidden from others that I'm going to reveal to you. There's something of the sort of Daniel in it. Like there's a thing I'm going to tell you that no one else knows. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who hasn't, even what he has will be taken away. It seems there that the thing that people have or don't have is 
knowledge or an awareness of the secrets or wisdom, right? Rather, it's applied differently elsewhere in the Gospels. But here, that seems to be the issue. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they don't see and hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they've closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and didn't see it, and to hear what you hear and didn't hear it. And so if you go back to the book of Proverbs, it, it begins, you know, the, the sayings of Solomon. Or, and so when Jesus opens his mouth in parables, is an appeal to saying, there, are, there is wisdom here, there are secrets here I want to impart to you that many people don't know. And if you read Matthew 13 in light of Proverbs, you'd see actually a lot in Proverbs saying, listen to me, my son, a lot of people don't know this, I'm going to tell you, because this is how to avoid stupidity and foolishness. The two are actually relatively close, I think. You then move forward to chapter 16 and you find a focus on, on the, the assembly, the ecclesia in Greek or the kahal, like kocholef, the, uh, the philosopher or the, the, the one who assembles, the one who gathers together and the, all the wisdom in Ecclesiastes and a focus on that, uh, the assembly in chapter 16. Um, and even uh, that surprising reference in chapter 23 when Jesus is talking about the people that you've killed and he says, you know, God sent you prophets or I sent you prophets, wise men, and teachers. It's, he's not just picturing himself as the last in a line of prophets, but as the last in a line of wise men who you're going to kill, last in a line of teachers who you're going to kill. So I think, again, we, with our, again, Calvinist, you know, hat on, hats on, we go prophet, priest, king, that, that those are the, and they are, like, obviously, a great way of thinking about the, the work of Christ. But the idea of Jesus as sage or teacher doesn't quite fit either of those, or any of those three. Um, I think there's a lot to it. Um, and then, of course, there are... Can we just go through... Would you mind if we just do a quick... Sort of dip, dip, dip over these five references? Because I think they're great. So Jesus is a five-fold shepherd, which is in this bit in the middle, um, like Solomon in the Song of Songs, who was obviously very much pictured as a shepherd. Uh, well, depends on your reading of Song of Songs. But if you assume that the shepherd is Solomon then I, in Song of Songs, then Solomon is very much shepherd, and obviously David was the shepherd. But look, there are five references to Jesus as shepherd in Matthew. First of all, Matthew 2, verse 6. And I think... You, it might be hard-pressed to think of when Jesus is called a shepherd while he's still a baby. But he is. Matthew 2, verse 6. Uh, they said, in, you know, where's the, where's the king to be, Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem of Judea. Because, it says in the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, uh, Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And obviously we move on quickly because we're going, oh, this is the wise men and because they want to kill him. Oh, are they going to get him or not? But actually, Jesus is then introduced with a biblical citation. He's already been introduced with a biblical citation, you know, Emmanuel. But now he's introduced with another one saying he's going to be a shepherd. He's going to be a kingly shepherd, not just like David. But, but there's, a, there's a Solomonic connection there as well. Then we go, you find the second reference to Jesus as a shepherd in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's a passage we know and love because we feel his heart towards us. But again, shepherding, a five-fold shepherd, second of the five, the idea that Jesus is not just a kingly shepherd, but he's a shepherd who has mercy and compassion on his sheep. 
Matthew 15, I think this is probably less known, but obviously no less significant. Um, the Canaanite woman who's coming and saying, please heal my, um, my daughter severely oppressed by a demon, but he didn't answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him very compassionately, saying, send her away, she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the word shepherd doesn't appear, but that's clearly the image, isn't it? The, I, and then that shepherd initially saying that I've been here to shepherd the people, but of course his, his mercy is then, as we've seen, drawn out towards this woman uh, in, in mercy. And then you have the shepherd judge, which I won't read because we know that story well, the parable of the sheep and the goats, but the idea that all of the sheep, and like, you know, the, the sheep and the goats are separated, like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's what's going to happen. But the shepherd in that sense is a judge. It's like I've now got all of my flock Goats over there, sheep over here, and this is the, the blessing or judgment to come. We don't very often think again as the shepherd, as the judge, but obviously if you have a mixed flock and you end up dividing them into, well, goats there, shepherd, you are. You, what you're doing is making an act of, you are discriminating in the literal sense of that word. You're saying, I am judging these people go there and these people go there. These, the flocks are different. And then, of course, chapter 26 and verse 31. And when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me tonight. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So it's back to Zechariah. So you could do, a, again, we, would, uh, we, we could go, yeah, but there's much more on, you know, the shepherd analogy is much more extended in John 10, which of course it is. But it's kind of prominent here. That's five, and a little bit like you know the sort of the seven clouds representing the seven mountain revelations. There's another. There's another slice you can run through the gospel again. Oh yeah, this sort of the, these Davidic Solomonic shepherd figure. But these five different things we can learn about the shepherding ministry of Jesus from Matthew's gospel doesn't quite lend itself to preaching, really, because mostly we don't very often, I want a, a little verse there and a verse there. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not as easy to fit into a series, but if you wanted to look at Matthew or even just wanted to look at the shepherding ministry of Jesus and you didn't want to go to John 10, this is a good way of doing it. There's another very different way of looking at it, drawing out different elements of his, his ministry. And he, yeah, go for it, Chris. What's the connection between the Song of Solomon? Sorry, I've thrown that out because... So the clouds around the outside are saying, look at all the ways in which Jesus is presented like a Solomonic sage. And the reason I put the shepherdy bits in the middle is because if you read Solomon, the Song of Songs, as if the shepherd and Solomon, there's two different ways of reading Song of Songs, right? You have the lover and Solomon, who is also a shepherd, and you have three characters where you have the beloved Solomon and the shepherd boy. But if you read it like Solomon and the shepherd are the same person, then the references to Jesus' shepherding ministry are also Solomon-like as well as they are David-like. That's the connection. I probably didn't make that very clear, so sorry about that. John. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I mean, biblically speaking, I am Boris Johnson on this. <laughs> I'm cakeist down to my boots on some of this stuff. As in, I think there's several different things going on 
in several of these passages. And I think the main thing happening in the wise men, the main allusion in the wise men's story is to Isaiah 60 and the bringing of the nations will come to the brightness of your rising and they will bring golden frankincense. So I think that's, that's, the, that's the main resonance you would pick up when you read it for the first time. But this is the beauty of scriptures. I, I do think that this is even just the number of times that the, the psalmist says, just meditate on my word. You're intended to sort of chew it and eat it and go. And it isn't just one dimensional. So I think you then look back and think, that's not the only. So even in Isaiah, Isaiah is presumably one of the things he's got in mind when he's writing that text about bringing the nations bringing God and frankincense is, yeah, but we have had that. In fact, at our heights, we had foreign kings and queens would come to the brightness of our rise and they would do it. So, different scriptures can actually echo previous ones. So then you've got Matthew speaking later, and he's picking up on that one and on that one. And I just think scripture works at multiple layers like that, which is part of the joy of it. So I'm a, I'm a big have your cake and eat it on the... I don't think that's typological in quite the, quite the same way, though. It's not, it's, not, it's not really sort of Jesus is the in, the... in that story, Jesus is being presented as Solomon. I think it's more that... The way this works is you notice the clustering again is in chapters 11 to 13, which is the Davidic Solomon bit of Matthew. So if you buy what I was saying yesterday about the ark from Genesis through to exile, um, you would say, yeah, so Jesus in this bit of the gospel is very strongly presented as a David and Solomon figure, but it hasn't come out of nowhere because there's been these other references previously that prepare us for that idea. That's probably how I'd frame it. Yeah. Yes. Um, how do you think we, I guess, preach Jesus as yeah, speech, that's really good. well, but also in, in that gracious gospel? That's that a really good question. That is a really good question. I mean, it's a thinker. Um, because you're right, I think, so I'm, okay, doing this in real time. Um, so I think the Lutheran, we got it, you know, law, and, law gospel contrast means, makes a lot of the New Testament, a lot of the Old Testament, easier to preach, but make some bits harder, particularly the bits that are saying, do this and you will live, which obviously he's quite happy to say at times. Um, I think, and we, I think probably, I've thought about it more when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount is like, you need to do this. These are the things you, you must live this way. And you write down to the, the punchline is, if you don't, if you hear what I say and you don't do it, you're like an idiot who built this house on the sand. So, and in the Sermon on the Mount, I think we have to be careful not to Lutheranize everything and go, this is really showing you, because of course we all know we can't build our house on the rock, we then, but fortunately for you, we have Jesus who did build his house on the rock so he can do it and so we can tr trust in him instead. And I think you can, you can oh, the temptation to over-Lutheranize all of Matthew's teaching is precisely why I wanted to teach on this. As to how you, I mean, I don't think there's many sections other than the Sermon on the Mount where you would only preach where the, the entire passage is comprised of instructions as to how to live. So most of these, of course, are put in the middle of sections that have got lots and lots of exhortation to live a certain way, but mingled with a lovely statement about, well, we've just seen all these things about the kind of shepherd that Jesus really is. Oh, gosh, that's... The, yeah. So these bits here, or, or that bit there, of course, is immediately followed by, come to me and take my yoke. And so there's much of the gospel, you don't have that problem in the text. You have it when you pull all of the bits of the text out and put them all on a page and put clouds around them. It makes it look, oh gosh, it's all about this, but most of it isn't. But in the Sermon on the Mount, I think we, we, we really have to 
allow the sermon to do its work. And so in the end, the heart that, that, that we'll come to this a bit in a bit. The, the only way you can live this way is by being transformed by the Spirit. But let's not dial down the call to that kind of life. Just in a sermon, I mean, I only preach for 25 minutes now on a Sunday, but it might be that you're going to read it for five and then spend 15 minutes doing the exhortation on what Jesus is actually saying and then say, but, you, but then there is an application, which is, in the end, this gospel doesn't stop here. And obviously people are going, well, how do you live that kind of life? And then this is what Jesus came to do, and here's how the Spirit and the death of Christ ensure you are able to do it. But the accent in much of the message has got to be where the accent of the text is. But it is a really good question, and I think we've got to think that through if we're going to preach it at all. Yeah, I'll go for you and then Rich. On that, Yes. Yes, that's true. And in Matthew 13, that's clearly true because it's very explicitly about that. And it, and the same in the sermon, actually, isn't it? That the, really the the kingdom heart of like the poor in spirit, the, that sort of thing, comes at the front end before all of the here's now what you want to do, what you need to do, and even the exhortations to not hate are based on skewing the heart and so on. So I I, I think that is a big part of the answer. But I think the Sermon on the Mount, most of these bits, you've got gospel in there anyway. The Sermon on the Mount is the bit where you go, you've just got to fight the urge to go, here's an impossible life. Jesus is saying you shouldn't even hate people. Imagine if the world was like that. Oh, none of us are going to manage that. Fortunately, here I am to worship. And we've got to get away from that because he isn't just saying this is why you need salvation. He's also saying, do this. This is honestly, this is the best life. Um, That's what God wants for you. Rich. Yes, it's hugely so, and we are. That is the next couple of pages for exactly yes. So wisdom as the key to human flourishing, and that Jesus is. You know, have you read Pennington? Uh, no, but I just arrived at the conference. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here every night this week. Um, <laughs> oh, this is you trying to get back in the game with one swing, isn't it? After, uh, after the you know, is it <laughs> creation gate <laughs> from the previous session? <laughs> Okay. Um, it's amazing that people ever come back to this conference, really, isn't it? The amount of, they put up with. Um, right, so, now, with that, so along, and this might be part of the answer to your question, actually, because alongside the idea that Jesus is teaching you wisdom for life, he is obviously presenting himself as true wisdom, just as Proverbs does the same. It says, young man, seek wisdom, and if you're going to get anything, get wisdom. Here's the key to wisdom. Get wisdom and all those sort of funny proverbs. What? How does that help? Um, but then, of course, Proverbs is presented. Proverbs presents wisdom as a person, and in the same way, Jesus is presenting himself as the true and better Lady Wisdom in this in this book. And this is obviously the the classic text in which he does. But I want you to see the parallels with um, with Sirach in the you know, the apocryphal book Ecclesiasticus, it's sometimes called. Um, because I just think, read the Sirach version first. I will give thanks to you, O Lord and King, and praise you, O God, my Saviour. Draw near to me, you who are uneducated. Why do you endure such great thirst? 
Put your neck under wisdom's yoke, the zugos, and let your souls receive instruction. It is to be found close by. See with your own eyes that I have labored but little and found for myself much rest. And then Jesus completely changes but retains the heart, the, the, the best intentions of Cyrus, but completely transforms it. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke, not just wisdoms as if wisdom is someone else. Take mine and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And many of us, I'm sure, will have read Gentle and Lowly over the last couple of years as a, as a book, and I, I can't actually... Is this me doing weird things again? I can't actually remember whether he draws this out in that book or not. I guess he probably doesn't because he wouldn't be very much apocrypha in a book like that normally. But the contrast, the idea that wisdom is someone else, and this is really what you want to do. Get the yoke, put yourself under the yoke of wisdom and you'll be fine. And Jesus says, put yourself under my yoke. I am wisdom. And I'm presenting myself as that way and the only one through whom you will and can get rest. Um, it's interesting, I was struck just recently reading this reference to, to something in Plato the other day, where in the Phaedo, Plato, Socrates says, if you will take my advice, you will think very little of Socrates and much more of the truth, which is the kind of thing that worldly teachers would always say. Don't think too much of me, just think about the truth and how different that is from what Jesus does, which is to say, actually, I am the, I am the wisdom. that. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so I was... The, the, con- <laughs> the contrast between, yeah, the, the contrast between the way Socrates would talk and the way Jesus would talk. And Socrates said, no, don't, don't focus on me, focus on the truth. Jesus said, no, you, you do. You will only find wisdom and the truth in me. And I, I was like, I'm the yoke you need. Um, and then, of course, the idea that Jesus' followers will reflect true wisdom. And then, you, again, once you see it, it pops up everywhere. So the, the, again, the Sermon on the Mount concluding with the difference between wisdom and folly, which is obviously classic Proverbs. Isn't it? You, you could pretty much take out Matthew 7, 24 to 27 and put it in the book of Proverbs and hardly notice. Now, this is what wisdom does. Wisdom, a wise man does this. A foolish man does that. There's a lion in the street or the sluggard or whatever. It just sounds like that kind of, this, he's created two cartoonish characters doing something very, very silly. Um, and it's funny, just this morning in my devotions, I was reading a, a, a comment on the, the version of this parable in Luke, and uh, it was telling the story, it was in the Kenneth Bailey book, about Jesus through Mediterranean eyes, and just saying how fascinating it is that um, you even had examples of this, like in 1991, where this sort of major building collapsed because in the end, the, the government, they'd realized they'd built it on clay, which is like hard baked in the summer and just hadn't built foundations because it looks like, if you build a building like in the Middle East in the summer, it looks like it'll never fall down because the ground's rock hard. And then, of course, the rain comes and it gets soggy and water got in and the whole building collapses, a massive scandal. It's only 30 years ago or something. Um, and, but just, again, the idea that foolish people do do that. They build the house on the mud or they build the house without foundation. And But it's just like the kind of thing that would happen in Proverbs. You've got wise and foolish builders. You've got wisdom is justified by her actions in chapter 11. You've got Jesus, you know, finishing all of the parables and then says, therefore, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what's new and what's old. Even the story of the wise and foolish virgins, we don't really think of that as being wisdom teaching, but it's almost hard to think of anything that could be more wisdom teaching-y than that story. Which is like, hey, here's what wisdom looks like, here's what foolishness looks like, do that, don't do that. 
But because we're all caught up in the end times when we read it, we don't, perhaps don't, don't see that, that thread to it. But yeah, the difference between wisdom and folly is that wise people are aware, live now in light of the future and foolish people don't. They, they just don't prepare for what's to come. They live now as if everything that matters is, is in front of them, but it isn't. And you need to live like the wise person. In contrast, his opponents reflect true folly. So I, this was, to me, this is a fascinating Greek nerdy point, but that actually the word Jesus uses for salt becoming useless is this, you can even see our English word moron hidden inside the word, moranthe. And that's, so when you say you moron, you are saying you fool in, um, in obviously in Jesus' Greek, but the idea that the salt is actually the word he uses is foolish. Now, to translate that into English, you obviously don't use the word foolish because what's foolish salt? But that's what he says. Um, so I get the idea that there is a way, if salt loses its saltiness, it becomes foolish. Um, and you know, so at the same time, you've obviously got wise and foolish builders. You've got the foolish people who don't hear the parables, like the master of the house who fills his treasures with old and new treasures, and fills his, uh, brings out treasures that are old and new. You also get the, the idiotic response, which is the people whose heart has grown dull, and they've barely heard with their, their ears, and their eyes have been closed. He's regularly challenging people for their foolishness. Don't you know the scriptures? I mean, you read it. What are you doing? You're wrong because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Blind fools, which is greater, the, God, the temple or the gold that sanctifies it, and then the foolish virgin. So there's a lot of contrast between wisdom and folly running through the, the gospel. It is like a kind of wisdom literature with a wonderful gospel ending. Um, and so much of what's in the book is run through, yeah, run through the lens of wisdom teaching about how to lead a, a prosperous or flourishing life. In a, in a true sense. Any kind of questions will come back on that page. Okay? Let's move on. So this, uh, this is a, 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 a number of different shapes. Um, so Scott McKnight and, and, and Jonathan Pennington on the way in which we understand, particularly now, I'm going to spend the next two pages, or three, yeah, the next three pages on the Sermon on the Mount. We may not fully get through the... Uh, the more before lunch, but that's fine. Um, so this is now thinking through the Sermon on the Mount, particularly as wisdom writing, wisdom preaching, wisdom literature, obviously in written form. So Scott McKnight does a thing where he goes, really, we've got three sources of biblical ethics, and you can, I think to some degree, you can find all of them operating in the Sermon on the Mount, but generally, if you stand back from the Bible and you try and think, how do you teach people how to live? Scott McKnight says, well, you have law, which is ethics from above, and you have the prophets, which he calls ethics from beyond, summoning people into the future. And you have wisdom, which is ethics from below. Look at the way the world really is. And then you'll line yourself up with it. And I think that's a good tripartite division for me. It's a helpful way of thinking. So when you're teaching people how to live, you're saying, God says this. The world one day will be like that. And the world all around you is already like this. And if you woke up and smelt the coffee, you'd live in line with it. And you bring depending on what you're teaching on, and you might want to bring in one, two, or even all three of those different ways of trying to make people see this is what you should do. Three different ways, which are still reflected in ethics today. So deontological ethics is effectively, there is a law, there is a binding moral principle that you ought to observe, which is a kind of standard way of ethical teaching. It comes from beyond. It comes from a, a universal maxim, in like the, someone like Kant, or it comes from God spoke which is obviously the Judeo-Christian and Islamic approach. Um, you have ethics from beyond. Is that, is that, 
is that, I think in some ways, there is something slightly ethics from beyond about utilitarianism, although I'm not quite sure that connection's, I don't think it's as strong, but then you've got wisdom, ethics from below, that's really what virtue ethics, which is this is the way to be wise and virtuous in the present. And so actually they are reflected to some greater or lesser degree in the different ways of ethical reasoning you still have today, in the way that ordinary folk all around us in this city would make decisions about good and bad, right and wrong. So that's the way McKnight comes at it. Pennington then comes and says, what you, what you have, and I think this is very, the, the top right-hand cloud, I think is, well, both these clouds are really important for thinking through the sermon, and I've found them so helpful, and Jonathan Pennington's book is outstanding. I highly recommend it. I recommend it more than many of these, actually. I just didn't bring it with me. Um, really, really helpful. The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, which is to your point, Rich, about, about flourishing. Um, as the end of wisdom here. And what Pennington says is you really have two major, an intersection between two major flows of thought, which is represented by that sort of the cross graphic. You have the story of Israel running one way, and then you have Greco-Roman philosophy coming across it. And the, the collision between those two, you could say this is true of the New Testament as a whole, of course, um, but the collision between the two produces the wisdom of the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, the sermon is offering Jesus' answer to the great question of human flourishing, the topic at the core of both the Jewish wisdom literature and that of the Greco-Roman virtue perspective, while presenting Jesus as the true philosopher king. So he says, this is really what the Sermon on the Mount is. It is an extended answer to the question, what does human flourishing look like? How do I flourish as a person? That's what the Sermon on, for Pennington, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is trying to do. Which is back to the question you were asking a few minutes ago about so how do you preach that with gospel? And you, of course you can. You say ultimately you find it in Christ. But don't rush there. Make sure that you do express the sermon for what it is really trying to say. Which is this is what flourishing looks like. And Pennington makes a lot of this and says, as we'll see, the word makarios for happy are is a better translation. Or flourishing are is a better translation than blessed are. The poor in spirit the merciful and so on and we will come to that because it's really important um and i think the case he makes is very strong um but th but he's saying this is really what the sermon is trying to do is trying to answer the question how do you flourish in dialogue with and in some ways in continuity with both the jewish wisdom literature and greco-roman virtue ethic reflection this is the big question of almost every generation how do i flourish how do i be happy what, is, what does that look like for me? That is the, arriving, the overriding human question almost. How, do, how can I be, lead a happy life? And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying like this. This is how you lead a, this is how you lead a flourishing life. This is what it looks like. It looks like poor in spirit. It looks like salt of the earth, light of the world. It looks like living morally like this. It looks like your devotional life being like this. It looks like you're prioritizing that, loving your neighbor, building your life on my words. That's what a flourishing life is. And if that's correct, if that is what the Sermon on the Mount is trying to do, that obviously has a big impact on the way you interpret the whole thing and the way you preach it and the way you just read it for your own devotions. But then he adds at the bottom, in this mixed marriage of Jewish and Greco-Roman parents, the sermon's son definitely favours his Jewish mother, which I quite like. So this is based, the sermon is the offspring between Greco-Roman philosophical reflection and Jewish wisdom literature, but it's more shaped by the mum than by the dad. It's more shaped by the Jewish tradition than the Greco-Roman one. And so, he's, yeah, so see the intersection, but don't regard them as equally weighted.
I don't think he's saying that Jesus is sitting there reading Plato and Aristotle in his upbringing, but I think he is saying that if you interact at all with, or even just like a lot of the Greek-speaking cities in the area, uh, and certainly if you if you travel around, as we know, I mean, some of these cities like, you know, Sepphoris and, you know, Tiberius and certainly Jerusalem are going to have lots of Greek speaking in it. Uh, you'd be, the, the, this, this is the kind of thing that people in their day are talking about, whether they are quoting the great philosophers or not that these are what they have another because every every generation is asking that question but there are greekish answers and there are jewish specifically jewish answers but jesus as we know in the gospels travels quite a lot to greek-speaking areas and to non-jewish areas and so he is in dialogue with that that world um but i don't think he's necessarily saying he's read them um and so the case for that, the case for the idea that the essence of the Sermon on the Mount is about flourishing, is an important case to make based on two Hebrew words, which fortunately are still first names in con- the contemporary world, which means they're just a little bit more manageable as, as words. So in the Old Testament, you have the, the word, there's lots of other Hebrew words we could draw in here, but it's a good contrast to make between Asher and Barak. So, and you, you might be familiar with them, you know, Asher means happy, um, Barak, typically translated blessed, um, and obviously those two you know, people are still today called Asher and obviously former president called Barak and so on. So, um, and, he, and Pennington's case, is, I think, is very strong, is that Makarios, when Jesus says Makarios, which is in your translation probably says blessed are the, um, in Matthew 5, that uh, that is not the best, that's not the best translation. It's the translation the King James went for, and that's shaped, or um, I think the King James went for it, but it's shaped a lot of interpretive tradition, but ultimately it's not the best translation because in, when you read the, the Hebrew Bible, the way that uh, the word makarios is, I, I can't remember whether he says, is always used, but almost always used to translate asher, meaning flourishing, rather than barak, meaning blessed. And the difference is this, that in when you talk about blessed are there, you're implying that God is doing something to you as a result of you having done something. So you say, blessed are the poor in spirit implies that God sees you being poor in spirit and blesses you as a result. Whereas when you say flourishing are the poor in spirit, you're actually describing a state of affairs that is almost more just naturally the way things are. And it doesn't require divine intervention as such to do it. It just states what the state of life is for such a person who is poor in spirit. And so he says, actually, it does matter whether you translate it happy, flourishing, or blessed. Because if you say blessed are the poor in spirit, you might say is, if you're poor in spirit, it's going to be really rough for you in this life. But in the end, God will bless you, so hang in there. Whereas if you read flourishing are the poor in spirit, it sounds much more like he's saying, the state of being poor in spirit results in a state of flourishing. Which is, do you see what I mean? It's, it's the flavor of that remark, if that's correct, is quite different. And so he makes quite a lot of this going through the Septuagint, so the Greek Old Testament, saying, look at all these references. When you see the word, when you find barak, you find it's usually translated, I think, eulogetes, so as in the, the idea of being blessed, eulogio. Whereas when you read the word asher, you'll usually find it translating, translated by makarios. And I think that's, that's very significant, I think. The idea that what we are talking about here is a call to flourishing and a description of what a flourishing life looks like, not just a call to the life of blessing. Um, and so you could go through, go through to specific examples like Psalm 1, where he said, are you going to translate that, happy is the man who, or are you going to translate that, blessed is the man who? But if you're reading it and saying, oh, it's, it's Asher, it's like, it's an Asherism, people will call it. It's like a description of flourishing is the man who. 
um, who he meditates on the law of the Lord, and therefore he's like a tree. It's a description of the flourishing state. It's not actually, he doesn't use the word normally used for bless. Bless, Barak would be the word you'd use when Abraham blesses his, his son. Or, you know, Jacob says, right, which I'm going to bless Ephraim or Manasseh. That kind, that's the word that's used there. But Asher is the word you use when you're describing a state of flourishing or some might even say happiness. So that is quite significant. And if that's true, the Sermon on the Mount is much more about human flourishing than it is about God's blessing as such over people in that, even though the two are obviously closely connected. Carl. <laughs> but then you get the second half of it, you get the second clause, yeah. which, which sounds more like either it's teaching how good what God's doing it or both. Yeah. But if, if, if it's just, hey, if, if you're mourning, you're happy, then how, how do you read the they shall be comforted? Yeah. Because, I don't, because he would say, and I think. I think, and so would I, that this is obviously not only referring to the state of flourishing because it's talking about the nature of the kingdom that ultimately is the reason why that flourishing is possible, but is, is not saying it's not only future-oriented. So the, the, the subsequent clause is usually, are they all future? No, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it's not even, a few, it's not even just an appeal to a, a future that you'll get if you live like this. It was that one of the, the reason why people who are poor in spirit flourish is because they have the kingdom. Whereas what I think we tend to read it as and what he's objecting to is the poor in spirit will be blessed because they will experience the kingdom of heaven. Or they, so as if like you're not flourishing now, but one day God will get, give it back. And he, yeah, he's, he, yeah, he is. And he's saying that, that, that this is actually a description of what the flourishing life is, is now. That even those who mourn are those who flourish because they, they will find comfort in God. And that we'll come to that later because... Um, is obviously drawing on, on other Old Testament texts there as well. So I think he's, that's what he's pushing against, but I also think he's pushing against, he thinks it's just a translation error, really, that this is, that because it's for so much, in the, so many Christians, the difference between blessing and flourishing and happiness has not really been drawn out, that there's a, we're at risk of replacing, a, a lighting a difference that's actually quite important in terms of where it places the accent on where you know where happiness comes from for such a person and when it comes um which i, I think is in, i think is actually quite important as an idea howard what are you gonna... yeah, i was just going to say dallas willard in that divine conspiracy talked about for the second part of the clause that, that, that you're, you're, if you're in that state then you're not happy and that yeah Yeah, yeah. I think I, 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 you need, we need to you need to give some thought. about it. if you're going to again preach this or think it through, it takes some time. Just to go okay. So it's not because obviously these are not the only occurrences of the word makarios in the gospel anyway. But as an introduction they, to the sermon, they become very important. And there is, in that sense, there is a significant difference between the statement "flourishing other poor in spirit" and "blessed other poor in spirit" in terms of what they make people think is going to happen as a result of Jesus coming. Um, so I think it's worth, yeah. Worth, worth mulling on, um, and we will come back to that. And then the other key Greek word that he gives, he gives a, I, this is to me the hardest verse in the whole of Matthew, is Matthew 5.48. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And again, Pennington goes, okay, so let's go to teleos. And so the idea of, or teleosity, which obviously is not a word, but you know, um, whole, complete. And again, he says, Usually in the Septuagint, if you find teleos, 
which we've translated perfect in most translations. Usually that's translating tamim or salom, shalem, shalom, in the, in, in the Septuagint. So usually, usually the, the Greek word teleos, which you've got as perfect, would actually be translating words that more properly mean whole or complete or even peaceful in the Old Testament. Um, and therefore saying, you must be teleos, you must be complete, you must be whole as your heavenly father is whole, is at the heart of what that summons is at the end of Matthew 5. Rather than, you know, because the word perfect implies morally flawless. And so that just, people just fudge that every time they get to it, don't they? You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But fortunately, we can't be. And that's why, and then you quickly tack to atonement theology. You think, that, if that is, if Jesus was saying that, why didn't he say why didn't he go Lutheran at this point? He, but he doesn't. He, he goes, this is what I'm calling you to. And then he goes on for another two chapters to talk about how to do it in your prayer life, in your charitable giving, in your fasting, in your trusting him. So why doesn't he say something more gospel-centered at that point? Um, and, and this is where I, I think you do. You can, be, you, you can become too reformed in your reading of some of these passages. And then, that's, then you, you read the letter of James and you're like, oh, I just don't know how to square that because it's just not true. Oh no, I'm Martin Luther. Um, and, and so you, you have that problem also, but I don't think it's just James, is it? You, you get it with passages of the Sermon on the Mount. And Pennington's saying, what, what, what would happen then if you translated and said, you must be whole, you must be integrated, you must be complete, you must be joined up, you must be tamim in that sense, you must be teleos, rather than you must be morally impeccable as your heavenly father is and works through and then obviously does does similar things through you know using a number of the other basically says these words are not only in use in the Septuagint but obviously makarios and teleos are both important terms in Greco-Roman reflection on the good life and in that sense this is where his downward arrow comes in says you've got to read what Jesus is doing not just against his Old Testament background although obviously that's very important and the, the more important of the two. But you also alongside, there are other people in the world at this time talking about what it means to be a person who is makarios, to be a flourisher, what it means to be teleos, to be whole, to be complete, what it is to be dikaiosune, righteous. Uh, righteousness, what it is to be phronimos, wise, what it is to, you know, the, and then even the, like the woes and you fools and reward and other, these other, the taagatha, the, the good. Lots of people in the, in the Greco-Roman world talking about these things, and Jesus is speaking to that issue with a particular vision of what the flourishing, complete, whole, integrated life looks like, which is somewhat different, I think, from the blessed are you, hang in there, be morally perfect, but you can't be morally perfect, so trust in Jesus, which obviously is true, just to be clear, I'm not snarking the gospel, I want to hope everyone knows that, but, but, as, but I'm snarking that, that is, that's not quite what Matthew 5-7 to 7 is trying to tell us or most of it is not trying to tell us. And then he has this, uh, I say, it's either very lovely or very clunky or maybe both, but the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount is makariosness through teleosity. In other words, the main theme is how we flourish through being whole. That's what it's about. That's what he, Jonathan Pennington says, and I think it's a, an outstanding book which I really commend to not mean that you'll agree with it all or that everything in it is you know, Holy Writ or anything like that. But it's the main theme, so what the Sermon on the Mount is trying to do is to say this is what the flourishing life looks like and the way you achieve it is by being whole. Now you'll say, what on earth do you mean? 
And for that, we will have to turn to the next page. But I, we might even need to do that after lunch because we might need a, a moment first. But first of all, any questions on what's on this page? Any questions on these? Because there's a lot of words in other languages here. So any, anything we want to come back on or clarify? Yes. 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 Exactly. So, it, and, and Pennington will make a lot of that. He said, actually, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like Psalm 1. Like it's okay, so this is the, and it, there are, you know, a lot of similarities. If you read Psalm 1, you know, Makarios is the man, or Asher, in obviously in the, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, Makarios is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord, he will become like a tree planted by streams of water. You will. You will flourish if you lead this kind of life in which you meditate on my words and put them into practice. You won't be like, you, you will be like a tree planted by streams of water. You'll also be like a wise man who built his house on rock. He, he said this is a sort of Psalm 1 writ large and expanded into all sorts of areas of your life, areas that you might not want poked at. But, you know, this is what it looks like for your prayer life, for the way you treat your neighbor, for the way you speak about your brother for the way you think about your money and possessions, for the way you fast, that the sermon is effectively an expansion of that kind of idea, and it sits very much in the tradition of something like Psalm 1. Yeah, that's a really good observation. Uh, Stuart. Yes, um, how do I relate it to Moses and giving the law? So I think that it, this is the thing about taking different kinds of slices of Matthew. So I think typologically, within the narrative flow of Matthew, this is the equivalent of Moses giving the law, but I don't think he is doing, I don't think he's doing quite the same thing as Moses. He's obviously contrasting. When he quotes Moses much of the time, he sounds like he's contrasting, but then of course bookends everything he says with the contrasts uh, by two statements that effectively say, fulfill the law. So... Don't come, I've come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. And then lots of teaching, and then love, love God, and that's basically, on, and love your neighbor, and this is basically on this, hang, don't do to others as you'd have them do to you, that, hangs, that fulfills the law. So he is, he is both affirming and going beyond the Mosaic law, but much of the teaching is not trying to do just what the law is doing, it's going further. Um, John Burkhardt, do you have a question? Yes. 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 Excellent. Yes. It's it's an up. Yeah. It's if you get into the minutiae of the law, you might go, "Oh, you're, I've, I've got to do this," and he goes, "Oh no, I'm saying do more." But if you stand back from the law, the whole purpose of the whole thing was to lead Israel to flourishing and abundance, and that's what I'm here to do as well for you. Yeah, that's a good shout, um, John. Um, why do you think Bible translators have gone with blessed then rather than flourishing? Yeah, I, I am always nervous of this because I don't know. And, and I, sometimes it's just linguistic change, isn't it? Sometimes it's that words have different connotations at different generations. Pennington does do quite a lot on it. I just can't remember what he said and I've forgotten to bring the book with me. Do you remember? You read it quite recently. Do you remember why he said that? Has anybody else read Pennington recently and remembers why? So a lot of people go, I've brought it, but no, I definitely don't remember. Hands have gone up and down very swiftly. Um, I don't remember. I think he does quite a bit on this. And 
I, by the way, I don't even remember if it is blessed in the King James. I've sort of assumed it is because it is in the modern versions that based, are based on it. Has anyone got King James here? Sorry? It's blessed in the King James. So the reason... The, sorry? Tyndale is blessed. That's why. So it'll be, it'll be because Tyndale did it, and, I, why t- and whether or not the word had a different resonance then, I don't know. But in the end, if Tyndale made a call 500 years ago, the chances are that several of the translations in that tradition, including the NRSV, the New King James, the ESV, will have gone with it because you basically stick with Tyndale unless otherwise stated, and often they change it, but mo- often they don't. Luke? Um. The online etymology dictionary, which I like to fill my preachers with, <laughs> says that blessed comes from the late 12th century and means supremely happy. Right. So that is interesting, isn't it? So then, of course, that raises the question for me. So what is the word they would use when Jacob is sitting there with his hands outstretched over Ephraim and Manasseh? which I'm not saying that site would necessarily tell me immediately, but I'm sure it'll have told me within about 20 seconds. This is the danger of teaching in the age of Google. But because I think now the word bless implies that, doesn't it? I am almost impartation of favour that you didn't have prior to that. It's not the state you're in. It's something I am attributing to you or giving to you. And so I think maybe it's just that the word, that, that the answer to John's question is the word blessing has subtly changed its meaning in the last 500 years. Um, so, yeah. Good shout. Okay, lots of questions. Ian. Yeah, so I'm just trying to think and get my head around what you're saying. You're saying that blessing is, is transactional, it's something someone does to you, whereas flourishing is a state of being. Yes, okay. yes. So I'm trying to get my head around the morning where, where, where Jesus says flourishing is yeah. the most Yeah. All of the... Yeah, that's the one that would sticks in the throat, right? Yeah. yeah. Because it... Yeah, that is one that sticks in my mind. I'm just trying to understand because flourishing feels like when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Yeah. These are the presence of these things. Yeah. Flourishing life will look like. Yeah. Trying to wrap my head around morning being something that's ever present. Yeah. Making them a God. Yeah. Why that isn't flourishing thing? It feels like. Yes, I probably wouldn't quite go there and say this is therefore in perpetuity. I think in some ways that's the reason not to read the 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 Beatitudes too eschatologically. Because um, otherwise you end up back where Carl was talking about, which is where you say, well, you're mourning now, but don't worry, because one day you'll be comforted. And I don't think that's what he's saying. In part, because as we'll see, the, the text he's drawing on, he will comfort all who mourn, is talking about the coming of the kingdom in the Messiah. It's talking about now, in the age of Jesus, not the future. Um, and I think that sometimes our nervousness about saying that people who mourn flourish means that we then, all nine, have to get projected into the future. Because we don't, because we feel like I can't possibly be saying that. Because mourning and the flourishing are the opposites. But I don't think Jesus is saying that. I think he is saying, as hard as I think, sometimes we go, well, what would that even mean? I think he's saying something like flourishing in its, in its truest form, in knowing the comfort of God when you are mourning is necessary to human flourish. You don't actually flourish as a person if you've never experienced what it is to mourn and to find the comfort of God in it. There is something deficient in your flourishing without having mourned and been satisfied. And I think that's, I also think pastorally that's kind of true. I think there are, it's not, it's it's horrible in its way, and it's obviously very sad, but there are things that deepen our joy and meaning out out the other side of suffering and mourning 
which I don't think we would ever know. And in some ways, I think when people ask that age-old question, why didn't God just create a world with heaven now without ever allowing sin? One of the answers you sometimes give is, well, I don't know, but one of the things that happens, it seems, is that we do, we are able to experience joy in a deeper way when we've known mourning. Um, and there's so much of that in the Psalms as well. So I think maybe he is saying that. Um, I'm not going to make that claim from Greek alone. I, I do think there's a broader point there, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, I might... I thought for a minute you said Paul on the Law by Ryan Gosling and I now realised that I then thought wow that's a divergence but you said Brian Rosner didn't you I've now realised what you must yeah think it means exactly that I think it means getting I, I think he is saying no I'm I have not come there's not a single thing in the Torah I've come to say yeah that bit was just wrong I've come to fulfill it I've come to broaden it I've come to raise it I've come to expand its reach I've come to heighten it I've come to get to the heart of it and therefore many of the demands I'm going to make are higher I think the reason that becomes a question for us is partly because we can well, hang on what do you do with Romans or whatever and we did a think conference on Romans a few years ago, and we talked quite a lot about that issue, actually. Um, but the other thing is, so what are you going to do with what are you going to do with the food laws, or what are you going to do with what are you going to do with Mark seven when it says, "In saying this, he declared all foods clean." But clearly, the gospel writers don't think they're, they're not saying Jesus came to fulfil the law and not get rid of any of it, but he just except for the food laws. That's not what they say. Actually, in, I am here to fulfil the food laws. I'm here to to fulfil to bring to their appointed completion and wholeness the distinction between Israel and the nations or the distinction between the kinds of food you can eat and the kinds you can't and the distinction between righteous and unrighteous and actually I've come to expand it so that Gentiles are brought in under it as well. But they're not going to do that by avoiding shellfish. They're going to do that by avoiding sin and they're going to do that by actually being shellfish that are included into the family. And, but that takes the church a generation to work through which is why Peter's dream was so confusing and why Galatians and Romans are what they are. So it's not an easy one but I don't think Matthew or Jesus think that what they're doing is setting aside parts, whole chunks of Torah. I think you say, no, I'm fulfilling them. That's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is doing. But I, I agree that the trajectory of this reading of the Sermon on the Mount and the trajectory of a Lutheran reading of Romans are obviously very pulling in different directions. I think they can be reconciled, but you have to drop a bit of, you have to drop some of the Lutheran side of what you're reading, particularly of Romans, I think. Um, but I have. And, 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 and still preserve, I hope, a lot of... I think Calvin's much better there, actually, because I think they talk about the different uses of the law and how it is ultimately fulfilled in the Christian life. And I think the reform did that really well. But I think there's a fairly pol polarising binary which doesn't serve us well if we read a sort of very Lutheran reading of some bits of Romans. Yeah, sir. Yes. Yeah. 
Uh, sorry, so I get what you're saying, but what if you don't have if you don't have Greek, how are you going to defend the idea of flourishing? I think. So I think what you have to. I think this is actually less a point about Greek than it is a point about English, which I thought anyway. And but it's really helpful that Luke's online nerdery site. <laughs> no. Very normal thing to preach from and look at. Um, I think this is actually down to the, to the way in which English has changed, not down to what, not down to Greek. So I think it is to say how do I, so happiness, the English word, comes from the word happenstance, which means the thing chance. But you and I don't use the word happiness to mean chance. We use it to mean well, it's difficult to describe it without, you know, going into using other words, but, you know, being, being smiley, being upbeat, feeling positive, feeling cheerful, you know, chipper, all sorts of other words. And so in a way, what I think we're trying to do here is not to go, oh, that Greek word's been, all the English translations are wrong. I think you're just saying, no, some of the words which meant that 500 years ago don't quite mean that now. And so the concept of makarios-ness or even what, translators at their best mean by blessedness or happiness would be better today expressed with a word like flourishing which is more to do with the whole life and that's where I think it's better to go to specific biblical texts like Psalm 1 because I think you would say if I was going to ask you say let's let's say we don't know what the first word of Psalm 1 is we just say something is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord and on it he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. He bears fruit in every season. Now, what word do you think is at the top of the psalm? We might not say happy and we almost certainly wouldn't say blessed. I think we might reach for a word like flourishing or prosperous or, I don't know, abundance or good. Like we would try and reach for a word that kind of described his state of being like a tree that's bearing lots of fruits. So I'm, if I was trying to make the case without reference to Greek or Hebrew, which I'm not quite sure why I'd need to do that, but if I did, that's probably how I would go about it. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. You had a question a few minutes ago. You might... Comment, actually, okay. Yes. Firstly, you've got to be very careful in the sense of um, some suffering is so horrendous, you just wouldn't yeah. try and go there. But if we deal with there's a lady called Eleanor Stump who wrote a book called Wandering in Darkness. Uh, what, she, what she basically does is pick up on Thomas Aquinas, who's written a lot about that. And what she's arguing is that God uses suffering to integrate us. We have a lot of competing desires in our heads, a lot of competing wills. And suffering drives us into God. And the result of that is that we come out, if you like, with those other worlds subjugated and a higher desire yeah. of God. I think I can think of, for example, my own experience, which is like what's come out of it is a sense of this is not my home. My mm. home is yeah. up and I'm yeah. living for that. Yeah. So I think suffering actually can integrate. And that's yes. That's what she's arguing. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that's, I, I mean, we've written about it too as a, as a couple, and I, I think it is, I think pastorally it's definitely true. The only nuance I'd add to it in the context of the mourning thing is that I, I think it is important to retain the distinction between 
flourishing are those who suffer, which obviously isn't what he says, flourishing are those who mourn, because I think mourning is the process of almost coming to terms with the loss and grieving it appropriately. Not, so I don't think suffering is intrinsically a flourishing thing, but mourning is more so. But I still agree with Ian's question. That is a, that's, it, feel, it sticks in the throats, or whatever the phrase you used was. I think it does, but I think we also have to, I think, to go there. Because if we don't, what we do is we, we then say the other, the other eight are not about flourishing now. Because that one can't be. And I just think that ends up doing it backwards. Listen, there's more questions we can answer right now. We will start the next session with any questions that remain. Tex is waving. Oh, has it? In which case, we do have time for Stu Gibbs's question and potentially yours as well, depending on... So delayed until... Okay, great. Well, that sounds... Seven minutes is the biblical number. Stu. <laughs> <laughs> yes, or you will never eat a meal. <laughs> yeah. um, I just, um, it was a few years ago, but I remember preaching on blessed for those who mourn. And I, I couldn't tell you all the detail of it, but my memory is in reading it, um, there's quite a lot of arguments, but the mourning being quite specific to the, the blessed those who mourn in Zion. Mm. It's a mourning over the state of Israel, you know, the state of the Yes, it does. I so he's saying that actually is there a more specific reference. So if you draw from Isaiah sixty-one, if you say this is this is referring calling back to those those who grieve in Zion, there's a more specific reference to the morning than we might get from just the blanket statement. I'm not one hundred percent sure I agree because I think that the the, the callback to the those who mourn in Isaiah sixty-one, obviously given you get the 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 ones who will be comforted, he will comfort those who mourn. And then later he will, you know, provide for those who grieve or he will grieve in Zion. Obviously the word Zion isn't mentioned and I think Matthew has, or I think he is deliberately universalizing the Isaiah references as he does elsewhere. So blessed are the meek for they will inherit, well we would translate the, the earth or the land, which is also, will come to all the places the Beatitudes come from in the Old Testament. So at a person, I'm not sure what Pennington would say actually, but personally I tend to think Matthew is, deliberately universalizing a whole bunch of Old Testament blessings into more general statements of flourishing. But I could be wrong about that. And I, and I think, it, you're right, it would definitely change the sense. Um, but I, I probably am happier with the universe, more universal reading, uh, personally. Who, who's to say? <laughs> um, yeah. 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 That 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 I didn't know. Stott said that. That's the that's that doesn't surprise me. But that I'm I'm coming from a slightly different place there because I I I read that as an attempt to evangelicalize the statements which are not are not quite as consistent with the way that the theology more generally is done but I also don't think you lose anything but it's clearly true what he's saying I personally think the statement is probably a bit more 
jarring than that in its original setting and we might have to do more thinking about it but in the end if that's how we preach it and go well that's, it's clearly true it's, a, it's exactly what you need to do and ultimately the reason why all mourning happens somewhere is because of sin um so yeah i think that's a it's very clearly theologically true yeah i'm just wondering whether um the vision in the sermon on the mount is for living in the kingdom inaugurated but not consummated yeah um, so the reality of how you live now as yes. People, while there is foolishness. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So does that ease some of the question about morning? Because in the consummation, these things. Yeah, definitely. It must be because obviously, blessed are those who are for righteousness' sake. Can't possibly be about the future. Um, you know. Yeah. This is that's what that's the whole point. That's why I've said we've got to not. If you overly eschatologize these things, you. I, I think there are two ways of, you could do that. One is by saying, the the reward is all in the future. But, I mean, a particularly weird interpretation, I guess maybe some people have gone there, is to say, this is just the state of flourishing for all time. Like, you cannot flourish unless you are also being persecuted for righteousness' sake. And I think, well, the new creation town, that's not going to work then. Because it, so I, I totally agree. That can't be what it means. Um, but this is saying, I think we're taking it as a given. You are living in the age you're in now. Therefore, this is what flourishing is. Yeah. Steve. I just try to, sounds great. Love it. Um, yeah. When he who has uh, four beatitudes. Yeah. But he contrasts. You want to get the curses in there, don't you? Contrasts <laughs> with four woes. Yeah. All of which are very future focused. Yeah. So, blessed are you, as a woe if you're rich now, you already go to the comfort, or if you're well paid, you're going to go hungry. Yeah. So, so I was just trying to, because they're kind of the contrast. There's such a future focus on these four woes. Yeah. Um, you will more than we. Yeah. Yes. No, no, I, I think that's a great question and probably one that will take all two minutes until we go next door and have sandwiches. Um, yeah, so, so the question, if you didn't hear it, is... It, I, this, is all, this is all interesting, but what about Luke's Beatitudes, which are contrasted with woes that seem to have a future judgment reference, which they do? Um, so, and if, if, if blessed to the poor is paired with woe to the rich because you're going to you know, you're going to become, you're going to get ruined effectively, then might not, is not the same thing also happening in Matthew. Um, and I think, to me, the answer is, I, no, I don't, I don't think that follows at all, because I think what Matthew's, clearly Jesus said a whole bunch of quite similar things that took this form, because they're very memorable. I, I'm not someone who goes, Jesus said one sermon in which he said these things, and either Matthew or Luke got it right, the other one slightly changed it, and he just never said anything like it again. I'm like, Jesus probably said a whole bunch of things like this many times, and they're all true, um, and Matthew and Luke have preserved different strands of that tradition because they want to help us see different things. Because for Matthew, the, 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 there are a whole load of woes, in the seven woes in Matthew, but they don't come until chapter 23. So Matthew isn't doing the same thing as Luke in, with his Beatitudes and woes. And he actually starts his teaching ministry with the Beatitudes, then does all the other miracles and the parables and all that, and then finishes with woes before the, the temple discourse. So the, the woes to the scribes and Pharisees, so chapter 23. And so in many ways, he, he isn't doing the, this is the nature of the future life thing at this point at all he's not saying oh he's not doing sheep and goats equivalent 
He does do that, but he does, and, but he does that after chapter 23. That's really the parable of the talents and particularly the sheep and the goats. It's the future judgment stuff. Whereas I think he's, he, here he's saying, this is the nature of the flourishing life, and then does lots of parables and healings to model it and live it out. And then, of course, the woes are not only, in, in chapter 23, are not only future-oriented. They're also a statement of judgment coming upon these people now, this generation, particularly in the next 40 years. So I don't think Matthew's use of the beatitude-woe pairing is quite the same. I think it's, Matthew's more, doing it more like the, the blessings and curses of the covenant in, you know, the, in Deuteronomy, like or Leviticus. Like, if you live, live like this, you're cursed. If you live like this, you're blessed, rather than you are going to face judgment at the end. Um, whereas Luke, because he's, the economic thing is bigger in Luke's thinking, I think he's talking more about the eschatological reversal that will come for those who've got privileges now, um, like you know the parable of the rich man and Lazarus kind of stuff. So I agree with you about Luke, but I don't think that means that Matthew is doing the same. 13.10, let's go and get some lunch. We will have a, a chance for any more remaining questions at the start of the next session, um, but you'll need some food. <laughs> 